This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. A year ago, armed police teams were scrapped with opponents adopting the slogan Arms Down. That was against the backdrop of Black Lives Matter upheaval sparked by the murder of George Floyd by police in the US. A year later, after the death of a police officer here and close calls for others, some of the media are now amplifying calls for arming up our officers. So bring back the armed response teams, you say? Well, absolutely. Clearly, that needs to be done. Also on Media Watch this week, is it OK to describe a woman like this on the air these days? Self-absorbed, attention-seeking, woke, bandwagon-riding hussy. But first, Kiwis finally struck gold in Tokyo this week, but the media didn't always get the colour they were looking for. People will be celebrating across New Zealand and we're going to get to some of those places next and lead in to this medal ceremony. Stay with us. It was a while in coming, but on Thursday afternoon, New Zealand finally won its first gold medal in Tokyo, and TVNZ's Olympic anchor Tony Street was thrilled to be able to go into one of the ad breaks, thrashing the go-to anthem for moments of national sporting triumph. But Champions of the World was a bit of a stretch. Grace Prendergast and Kerry Gowler's double skulls gold medal only just meant that New Zealand had leapfrogged Fiji on the medals table, and the night before... Against New Zealand, Fiji proved they really are the champions of the world in rugby sevens. And having one last time round in Rio as well, Fiji might have found the underdog overtones in the New Zealand TV commentary a little patronising. Well, such devout people, such proud people, they know what it means to their nation because it's a tough time right now in Fiji. And this, well, they're one of the most happy, smiling people in the world, the Fijians, and they've got so much to smile and be proud about now. It's so much bigger than rugby. Such a special moment. Just 800,000 people occupying the islands of Fiji. They've got rugby in their blood. And once again, they've got gold in their eyes. It is such a wonderful sight to see. Anyhow, after our gold medal breakthrough on Thursday, former Olympic champion rower Eric Murray told TVNZ this would inspire others with medal races to row, like Emma Twigg. She'll be watching, saying, well, if Kerry and Grace can do it, like, I know that I'm on speed. Um, it's my time to go out there in the semi and do it. So she'll be focusing on that now. Well, presumably Emma Twigg wasn't doing it on speed when she won the gold medal. That's definitely on the banned list. Though News Talk ZB's host Simon Barnett joked about Twigg's highly fancied rival from Russia being a drug cheat. That's Hannah Prokatsin, who broke down in tears, devastated when she lost the race. I know. I saw that uh, Prazakstan, though, from the Russian Olympic Committee, and I thought, oh, yeah, I don't know where the steroids are at play. <laughs> <laughs> the, the drugs didn't kick in. <laughs> they didn't kick in. She took them too late. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two gold medals and one silver medal were won by Emma Twig and the men's and women's eights. And what TVNZ's presenter Tony Street hyped up as the golden lunch hour. If ever there was a day to take a long lunch break, this is it. We have three rowing crews going for gold in the space of an hour. And when it was all over on Friday, the afternoon host at SENZ, Mark Stafford, was having a hard time keeping a lid on it. We are beside ourselves with joy. I'm stuck in a soundproof uh, radio booth getting texts from people all over the country who are just going nuts at work. I'm not allowed to go nuts because I'm on the radio. And the day before that, when Grace Prendergast and Kerry Gowler won their gold, an excited Lisa Owen on RNZ's Checkpoint asked them how they did it. Because you're like a missile, right? Your eyes are locked on straight ahead and you're just going for it. So what are you thinking when you're in that headspace? 
and the freshly minted Olympic champion told Lisa Owen rowing was actually a bit simpler than that. I think at the end of the day we, we just have to race from A to B as fast as we can. Within the hour, the pair were talking to TVNZ1 News host Simon Dallow live on the air. You must be stoked on so many levels. Yeah, it's honestly still a bit surreal, but yeah, we're just literally over the moon and couldn't be happier. <laughs> and that went a little better than his live chat 24 hours earlier with silver medal rowers Brooke Donoghue and Donna Osborne, who were not quite as stoked as Simon hoped. Our Olympic silver medalist, how good does that sound right now? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. We're pretty stoked right now. Just stoked. That's it. <laughs> I can't even put it into words. Donna Osborne went on to tell Simon Dello they followed the process and the outcome was the outcome. So that chat didn't exactly go viral, unlike one with another pair of silver medalist rowers five years ago at the Rio Olympics. Guys, good afternoon. Congratulations. You did us proud today. How are you feeling? Hi, lads. How are things? What's the crack? We're in Rio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the, background might, might, the background might look superimposed, but it's very real. It is, yeah. <laughs> it certainly is. That's all there. The O'Donovan brothers, Gary and Paul, from Skibbereen in Ireland, became celebrities off the back of their post-victory TV slots. And on the Graham Norton show later, the brothers echoed Grace Prendergast when they told him rowing was a pretty simple matter of going from A to B. It is a fairly simple sport, like. People do complicate it, like. And you, yeah. you know, your men says, go at the start and there's a hooter at the finish and if you can get them... <laughs> But Ireland's O'Donovan brothers aren't just in it for the laughs and the chat show appearances. The same day that Gowther and Prendergast struck gold for New Zealand in Tokyo last Thursday, so did Paul O'Donovan for Ireland in the men's competition. But his brother Gary had been unsentimentally eased out before that to make way for a younger, stronger rower. But when he was asked by Ireland's national broadcaster RTE how stoked he was to get Ireland's first ever rowing gold medal, Paul O'Donovan gave the credit to time. But uh, like that's more of a fact of just being probably born early in the history of time that like in a million years from now we'll have uh, had a lot more gold medalists I, I, I'm sure from the Olympic Games like so that's kind of nothing, to, nothing down to what we've actually done ourselves in our training so we can't kind of take credit for any of that at all it's just just a bit of luck with, with uh, being born when we were more, more than anything. However, some of our athletes can also talk a pretty good game post-victory. Ruby Tui, for example, went way beyond all credit to the opposition when the BBC nabbed her on the sidelines after the Black Ferns had beaten the team representing the Russian Olympic Committee. Yeah, the uh, Russia, they are very cool people, man. We get on with them, very lovely people. It was not easy. Don't be fooled. That was not an easy game. Lots of running. My GPS just blew up. That's how hard it was. So, um, nah, lots of respect for Russia. And Ruby Tui also had kind words for the GB team, which came within a whisker of beating them in pool play. I love the whole concept of GB, and like I said, huge congratulations to Great Britain, Great Britain and um, all the people of their place because they fundraised, they worked hard, they campaigned. I think even a couple of us donated, and they um, ended up at the Olympics. So huge, huge, mahi, uh, big job. Sorry, mahi is men's job. <laughs> so much, baby. I mean, George, you have to go because I think the rain's coming. We'll see you tomorrow. What, what rain? 
When the BBC's women's sport reporter Joe Curry posted that on Twitter, more than three million people watched it. And there was plenty more where that came from after the Ferns won the gold medal last night in an interview that Sky Sport reckoned was the best ever. We have so much respect for every team in this um, campaign for World Women's Sevens. And, um, you know, it's, it's extremely guttering what um, the English soccer team had to go through. It's, um, yeah, it's hard to believe that things like that are still happening in this world in 2021. So we were more than happy to join with um, GB and, and credit for those boys. We're human too, eh? We're Sports absolutely human. human too, oh, my gosh, we are human. Yeah. And that game is so hard to prove that we are human. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. When someone's suffering, we've got their back. So 100%. Anything you need. All right, thanks. Ruby Tui, Michaela Bly, we'll let hey, you go. Rookie, who's commentating? I'm, Are you? I'm, no, I'm here. I'm down here. Whoever's commentating, we want to hear some puns. Come on. Let's go. <laughs> During COVID, the Ferns could barely get a game. Now people are saying they should get their own show. Tears were shed in the TVNZ studio as emotions ran high after their final. Oh, that is raw and it is real. <laughs> and I know you wear your heart on your sleeve as to all of the wahine in that team, but... Those are very special images and, and I know it sometimes feels like it's right up in your grill with a camera on you and there's very personal moments but, but thank you for sharing them so publicly and letting New Zealand know what it means to you too. But this time there was no one in the new sports radio network SENZ going nuts. Instead they were airing a pre-recorded Aussie motorsport programme from last Wednesday featuring a bunch of blokes saying that Tokyo 2020 was all a bit rubbish because there were so few fans. I reckon I'd be a bit dirty if I was an Olympian that I, you know, won a gold or wasn't, you know, there's two trainers in the audience. Yeah, and mum and dad can't even be there. Good on them. Proud of them. But I I'm, I think we'll be glad when we um, get through COVID and the next uh, Olympics to have a crowd will be Brisbane 30-32. Wow. <laughs> That's big. <laughs> and the men's sevens team this week who got pipped for gold also showed they can sing a good game. They welcomed home the victorious rowers back to base with a heartfelt wire and that was in spite of their own disappointment at missing out on their own gold medal against Fiji in the final of the Sevens just the day before. Now among them was the veteran Sione Molia, whose family were watching that match back home in Otara with TVNZ's Matt Manukia and a camera in their lounge. Presumably they were hoping to catch the family celebrating a historic win. But what they got for One News instead was a great reminder that it's not all about winning all the time. Backing their boy, win, lose or draw. Thank you Sione for... <clears throat> for... Let the family uh, on the top of the world. Just remember to bring your jersey home for Dad. <laughs> that needs to go up on the wall. <laughs> Add it to the collection, which for the first time will include an Olympic medal. Matt Manukia, One News. To get to this point, what did you ask them? Did you, did you go out there and ask them what is it you would most like in order to keep you safe? We sought uh, feedback on any ideas that they felt would make a difference to frontline safety. Including guns on hips? And we asked them broadly in terms of what all of their input was. And of course, um, you know, general arming is a conversation that emerges when you ask that question. 
That was the Police Commissioner Andrew Costa talking to News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy-Ellen on Tuesday afternoon, shortly after Eli Epiha had been found guilty of the attempted murder of police officer David Goldfinch in June last year. Epiha had earlier pleaded guilty to killing fellow officer Matthew Hunt in the same incident. Now, as you heard there, Heather Duplessy-Ellen was keen to raise the question that arises in the media whenever police officers are killed or seriously hurt by offenders with guns. Should our police officers have guns on them too? The reality is our current style of policing keeps us safe in many ways um, that we need to carefully hang on to. Um, There's no jurisdiction that you would look to to say, you know, that's the answer. These are the people that we want to be like. And most other jurisdictions are armed. It is not the um, magic wand for safety. Now, as ZB hosts like to do, Heather Duplessy-Ellen gave her own verdict on his response at the end when the interviewee can't respond. Appreciate it. This is Andrew Costa, Police Commissioner 9292 is the text number because I don't know about you. It doesn't feel like everything's being done if you deny them the guns on the hips um, and if that is what they want. The New Zealand Herald that day carried compelling reporting of the EPR trial across four pages with the grief of the family of Matthew Hunt front and centre. And last Tuesday, after the guilty verdict, Diane Hunt, Matthew's mother, said this to the media outside the court. The past two plus weeks have been harrowing for all of us listening to what happened to Matthew and Dave in such raw detail on Friday the 19th of June 2020 can't be described in words. But during those two weeks, parts of the media put that issue of arming the police front and centre as well. Good afternoon, Aotearoa New Zealand, and welcome to the Talkathon with me, Ryan Bridge. It has just gone six after four. It is the that was the Magic Talk radio host Ryan Bridge during a fundraising Talkathon two weeks ago, which raised almost three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the Child Cancer Foundation. And among those helping him go thirty-six hours straight on the air was National Party leader Judith Collins. She took talkback calls on July the fifteenth, including this one from Brian. With the National Party considered generally. Uh, allowing police officers to carry arms. And that was a tricky question for an opposition leader and a former Minister of Police, nicknamed Crusher. The funeral for police officer Matthew Hunt had been held just the previous week and that trial for the attempted murder of his colleague David Goldfinch was underway at the same time. And during Ryan Bridges' talkathon, this was on TVNZ1 News. Terrifying incidents involving police and guns have left a man dead and some Auckland motorists traumatised. And One News said this was not an isolated incident. Official figures released exclusively to One News show guns have been fired at or presented to police dozens of times in the past two years. So with all that going on, it's no wonder emotions were high and the desire for something to be done was strong. But back on July the 15th, Judith Collins' answer to call up Brian about guns for all our cops was measured. Brian would have to be pretty careful about that because the population of New Zealand doesn't seem to want it. But certainly when I was the minister, we brought in the easier access for frontline police officers to get the firearms, either in their, lo- in their lock boxes and make their own decisions as to whether or not they take them when they got out of those cars. The other thing is too, you can't do this without the population actually agreeing. And three days later, it was no surprise that host Jack Tame asked the police minister, Portal Williams, this when she appeared on TVNZ's Q&A show. Who is responsible for decisions when it comes to general arming of the police? Oh, no, general arming of the police. I don't think our community um, supports general who, arming of the police. For I that certainly decision? don't. That's a discussion for the community. Porter Williams went on to remind Jack Tame just how the controversial trial of the police armed response teams had been scrapped last year because the communities and the places they were deployed 
didn't approve. And policing with community consent was pretty much what National Party leader Judith Collins had backed on that magic talk show interview three days earlier. But three days later, Porter Williams was asked about it again. News talks today with Mike Adley in for Mike Hosking. Renewed calls to arm the police at all times on the front line instead of having guns in the boots and glove boxes of cars. But at that point, there were no renewed calls for guns on the hips of cops from any politician, any political party or community group or the police association. Mike Yardley wanted to know if pressure from lobby groups had prevented the minister from restoring the police armed response teams that were scrapped a year ago. Action Station, Just Speak and People Against Prisons Aotearoa. Do you respect those groups? Do they represent the public pulse? I'm speaking more of the Māori and Pacific communities for whom um, their interactions with the police over the years have not been, um, you know, uh, that great. It was indeed community groups largely representing Māori and Pacifica people and not the justice reform pressure groups, Mike Gardley name-checked there, which persuaded the police commissioner last year the armed response teams didn't have support in the places where they were deployed. He scrapped those trials six months before Porter Williams became the police minister last year, and the National Party at the time, by the way, supported that decision too. But when that interview was over, Mike Yardley rushed out an opinion piece for the News Talk ZB website and its sister publication, the New Zealand Herald. The police minister duck-shoved my suspicions by arguing that she was solely representing the concerns of Māori, Pacific and South Island communities, not the pressure groups. The whole interview could have got sidetracked if I'd got preoccupied over whom she says she's representing. She's the Māori and Pacific Minister of Police, apparently. But actually, Mike Yardley would have done everyone a favour if he had focused on that issue of who Potter Williams said she represented, because that became the racially charged issue that he and his fellow ZB hosts seized on subsequently, and the New Zealand Herald, and the National Party leader. Porter Williams did say she was representing the concerns of Māori, Pacific and South Auckland people about the armed response teams when Mike Yardley asked her about those justice pressure groups. So why are you giving these radical groups, Minister, the time of day? I'm not giving them the time of day. I'm talking about the communities that I represent, which is the Māori and Pacific communities, who told me loud and clear that um, you know the general arming of police, and particularly the ARTs, a real concern to them. But she didn't say she was solely representing Māori Pacific and South Auckland people as the government's police minister. But Mike Yardley chose not to clarify that apparently outrageous claim. Instead, he questioned Porter Williams as if she was the spokesperson for the pressure groups that he disapproved of so strongly. Can I just read to you something that uh, People Against Prisons Aotearoa said? This is the statement they issued when the armed response team's trial was canned. Quote, We are committed to disarming, defunding and abolishing the blood-stained racist institution of the New Zealand police. And the fact that Porter Williams herself didn't endorse that statement, or that group at all, seemed to make no impact on Mike Yardley. Or the fact that such strident and loaded statements from vocal lobby groups like that are actually much more of a pain for a minister than they are for those who are irritated by them. But that didn't stop News Talk ZB and sister paper The Herald turning all of this into news together. A story on The Herald's website soon after, with the bylines of three reporters, began like this. Police Minister Potor Williams will not be backing down on her strong stance not to support the general arming of police because the Māori and Pacific Island communities she represents do not want it.
And the so-called strong stance was actually one that every police minister of every government so far in recent times has also maintained, and it's not because of a connection to Māori and Pacific Island communities. But the Herald went on to say, Herald readers issued a strong message of disagreement in response to William's stance, and... A number responded saying they wanted to remind the minister she represented all New Zealanders and not just Māori and Pacific Islanders. Though, as we heard, Porter Williams never really said she didn't or wouldn't represent all New Zealanders as a police minister. And on the ZB website, that same story was headlined like this. Cops and public fume as police minister rejects permanent arming of officers. Though that really meant some ZB listeners and Herald readers getting in touch, among them, apparently, some police officers. The same Herald article quoted National Party leader Judith Collins as saying, People did want to retain the armed response teams last year, but the police minister gave in to a vocal minority, and that's something she repeated on RNZ's morning report the next day. Unfortunately, the police commissioner gave in to a vocal minority who actually doesn't have to live next door to these people. But Judith Collins didn't mention those objections when the armed response teams were canned more than a year ago, or, as we heard earlier, on Magic Talk Radio just six days earlier, when she told the host Ryan Bridge community consent was the crucial thing. Now, six days after that, Judith Collins was interviewed by Ryan Bridge again, this time on MediaWorks AM show, and she gave the same host a very different answer to a very similar question. So bring back the armed response teams, you say? Well, absolutely. Clearly, that needs to be done. We had the government basically pushing around the police and getting the police commissioner to stop that trial uh, when it was clearly needed, and we're seeing the results of some of that now. The police commissioner said it was nothing to do with the government, everything to do with the community's response to it. Are you oh, saying that, bollocks. Are you saying the government... You know, is... This is just total nonsense, and we heard this rubbish from him. Judith Collins wasn't asked for any evidence that the government had leaned on the police to make that call, and she didn't offer any. Next day, the Herald's front page asked this question. Armed police in New Zealand, is it time? And Judith Collins was back again on News Talk ZB, echoing Mike Yardley's disgust the previous day about Porter Williams failing to condemn campaign group People Against Prisons Aotearoa. And actually, to go and let, let a group like people against prisons Aotearoa attack the police like that and not even have the gumption to stand up for them. She's just got to go. Now the host of that ZB show, Heather Duplessy-Allen, told her listeners that was a bit over the top from Judith Collins, but she echoed Judith Collins' own press statement almost word for word when she told her ZB listeners this. She's the police minister. If there is a group that she's supposed to represent and certainly have the back of, I would have thought it's the police. I mean, she's the person who's supposed to go to the finance minister and the prime minister and argue for resources and funding to make sure that the cops can do their jobs properly. And surely, if there is a second group that she should be representing, it's the people of Christchurch East who elected her into parliament. But running the police portfolio with her local electorate in mind is not what a good minister is supposed to do, as a former political reporter, Heather Duplessy Allen, would surely know that. Last Sunday, another ZB host, Kerry McIver, breathed more stale air into the issue with her column in the Herald on Sunday. I would have thought the police minister would have had the interests of police at heart first, then New Zealanders as a whole, and not just the sectors most dear to her heart. Kerry McIver began her piece by saying that when Porter Williams was appointed as the police minister last November, it was not a role that she had sought, and that was a detail in a profile of the new minister published by Stuff at the time. 
But that same article also said she was reluctant to talk about racism in policing. ZB's Kerry McIver, though, wound up her column last weekend with this. There must be nothing more disillusioning than hearing your minister rabbiting on about unconscious bias and systemic racism. But as far as Media Watch can tell from what's been in the media, Porter Williams has only spoken about the issue obliquely when asked about it directly by the media. She really isn't the one rabbiting on about race while professing to care about police officers' safety. Porter Williams fronted up on the News Hub Nation show that same day and was told this by the host Simon Shepherd. Frontline officers that we've been talking to, there's a couple of quotes here. It was in the intro. We feel she's anti-police, anti-response teams, armed response teams, and you need to get on the TV and social media and show you back the police. And given what police officers have suffered lately, how many of those unnamed officers really care about their minister getting in the media to back the police? Or does that matter more to parts of the media for their own ends? Last week we heard about farmers hitting the streets of towns and cities up and down the country to show just how unhappy they felt about the government over environmental policies penalising them and how they felt unloved by many New Zealanders these days. But some people in the media had their back, like the editor of King Country News, Heather Carsten. The dailies, the, 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 the you know, TV, they, they don't send people out there to actually see and feel and hear what's going on. So this kind of thing takes them by surprise. They're very much on the back foot, I believe. And speaking up for farmers this week was the presenter of NZME's rural radio show The Country, Jamie Mackay. He's also a former sheep farmer and currently a partner in a Southland dairy farm. He wrote an open letter to Jacinda Ardern, which he said was on behalf of all farmers. This was published by the New Zealand Herald, and in it, he urged the Prime Minister to slow down environmental policy change, though it was full of a weird mix of slogans and catchphrases. Learn from Rogenomics. Be on the right side of history on this one. Take farmers with you. Be kind. Our collective provincial plea to our PM is, we want Oakuni Carrot, not Wellington Stick. But if Jamie Mackay wanted this to be taken seriously at all by Jacinda Ardern, it was fatally flawed. For reasons he didn't fully explain, he insisted on telling her right at the start she was an accidental Prime Minister, thanks only to Winston Peters. Hayden Donnell took a look at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, talking to Karen Hay. The other bad open letter this week was from the country's Jamie Mackay. It was in the Herald and opened with the immortal line, Firstly, though, in your capacity as an accidental Prime Minister due to Winston's whims, I want to thank you on behalf of farmers. These letters do, the format just lends itself to sounding patronising, doesn't it? It's actually all performative, it's all for the audience. It's kind of a grating thing about them that I find. It's also just tired. It's like doing an acrostic poem of someone's name for like an engagement speech or, you know... (laughs) I, I, I'm against it. I just want to write an open letter to open letters. Uh, dear open letters, please go away forever. Yours truly, me. Media Watch's Hayden Donnell there calling on columnists to close down their open letters when they want to get a point across. Hayden and Karen talked about plenty more from the week's media in Midweek Media Watch as well, with the sudden departure of a big name at the edge, stories of struggle about MIQ and an academic report with some startling admissions, all topics they tackled, and more. If you missed it last Wednesday, it's on our webpage, on our section of the RNZ app, or the audios in our podcast feed, available to download for you wherever you get your podcasts. 
But also channeling one of the farmers' current complaints this week was News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking, who was incensed about SNAs, significant natural areas, which prevent some farmers fully developing or converting some of their land. On Wednesday, Mike Hosking told his ZB listeners this. Under the new rules of adopted, what happens is you can continue doing whatever it is you want to do with the land that you have been doing. But if you want to do anything different, things like fencing, cutting down trees, it's no longer your land. You've got to apply to do it. Doesn't that strike you as the most absurd thing possible? It's like South Africa. Though Mike Hosking didn't explain what that's got to do with South Africa, or that it's actually not impossible to modify significant natural areas, just that some permission is needed. But who was to blame for all this? Well, the council through the government, because you've got to remember the central government's driving this. This is James Shaw. This is the dangerous aspect of the Green Party. As nice as guy as James Shaw is, he's dangerous. Because he thinks it's OK to direct a council to come onto your land, your private land, the land you paid for, and to go, hmm, we quite like the look of that. We think there might be significance. It's actually the much maligned Resource Management Act's Section 6, which requires that significant natural areas are protected, and that law was passed back in 1991 by a National Party government led by Jim Bolger, long before any Green MP, let alone the current co-leader, had ever been elected to Parliament. Now, political point scoring like that and stunts like that open letter to the Prime Minister don't really do a lot for the future of farming or for our environment, but in the media, there's also increasing interest in things that do. Well, this week, TVNZ launched a documentary series all about the future of farming and the environment, dairy farming to be specific. Growing up in rural Southland, I remember when this was nothing but sheep and beef farms. But over my lifetime, I experienced this dramatic transition to dairy. When I was born, there was only 40,000 dairy cows here, and now there's over 600,000. I really don't remember this cow on top of the tavern. <laughs> to be fair, I don't really remember many cows around here growing up. Baz McDonald also sits down in the series with farmers themselves to hear them out. We're not some massively evil group of people destroying New Zealand. We certainly don't get it right all the time, but we're certainly heading in the right direction. And watching all of this makes you wonder why a significant, sensitive and long-running issue like this hasn't been documented in a series like this before now. So, having finally made one, I asked Baz McDonald, why? Yeah, it is surprising. I think this is an issue, and many times I said this to myself as we were covering, I was like, God, I should have just written a book. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, um, you know, there's been lots of books written about this sort of thing, and a subset of New Zealand society reads them and has discussions in their own little bubbles, but we needed something that could reach a much broader audience, and I thought a documentary was the way to do that. And next week here on Media Watch, you can hear all about the particular problems of tackling such hugely contentious and contested issues like agriculture, the economy and the environment in one single documentary series. In the meantime, all six parts of the multimedia series Milk and Money are on TVNZ's digital platform RE and available to watch in full on TVNZ On Demand. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, as we've heard so far today, guns for the police and fairness for farmers are two hot issues that have engaged the audience in the New Zealand media lately. And another one, all year long, has been Meghan Markle. For example, the New Zealand Herald's News and Lifestyle section carries articles about her almost every day, and their stablemates at ZB are on the same page too. 
Megan I get. I saw it early on. It seemed obvious to me what was coming. She's an opportunist who knew exactly what she was getting into, then cried wolf when she got there and worked out she couldn't in fact get her own way and couldn't change anything. That's News Talk ZB's Kate Hawksby in just one of at least two dozen personal on-air condemnations of the former Duchess and her husband, Harry. Her own spouse, Mike Hosking, seems equally uptight about the former Duchess. Back in March, he had this on-air spray at her over reports that some of her staff might have been forced out of their jobs. I think we all see her for what she is, don't we? A sort of a shallow, self-absorbed, attention-seeking, woke, bandwagon-riding hussy. And we're better off without her but it seems he and the NZME family really would miss her if she was gone. So much space and airtime do they fill with what they make of her. Now, at the time, that old-fashioned but gratuitous and sexist insult, hussy, struck some as a bit over the top. It's commonly understood to mean someone who's sexually promiscuous. And in the case of Meghan Markle, that's either untrue or none of Mike Hosking's business, even if it was. So is it really okay in 2021 to call anyone a hussy on the air? Well, some who thought not confronted News Talk ZB about it, but the network didn't agree. We strongly reject the claim that the host's use of the word is sexist or misogynistic. But two women who complained then went to the official watchdog, the Broadcasting Standards Authority, about this. One complained that it breached the good taste and decency standard and one the standard for discrimination and denigration. And six months on, the watchdog's verdict is in. NZME said Mr Hosking is well known as outspoken and he was entitled to voice his opinion of Ms Markle. And they said that their Oxford English Dictionary said that hussy means this, a girl or woman who behaves in a disrespectful or inappropriate way or who has many casual sexual relationships. But they said Mike Hosking only meant Meghan Markle was the former kind of hussy. It also made the point that hussy is not, in the Broadcasting Standards Authority's 2018 publication, language that may offend in broadcasting, which is true. And the BSA concluded that calling Meghan Markle a hussy was not likely to have caused widespread undue offence or distress, or undermined widely shared community standards. Now, with regard to the broadcasting standard for discrimination and denigration, NZME said that only applies to recognised sections of the community and not individuals, which is also right. But the Broadcasting Standards Authority said hussy was specific to women who do constitute a recognised section of society. So the discrimination and denigration standard did apply, they said. However... The importance of freedom of expression means that a high level of condemnation, often with an element of malice or nastiness, will be necessary to conclude that a broadcast encouraged discrimination or denigration in contravention of the standard. So, calling Meghan Markle a hussy in the way Mike Hosking did didn't meet that threshold, according to the BSA. If a woman in the public eye behaves in a way a broadcaster disapproves of, then it's A-OK by the BSA to describe her in that way, especially if you're known to be outspoken, as long as you tone down any surrounding malice, menace or nastiness. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.